0: the most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on fight back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of fight back with Jane Brown.
1: Good afternoon and welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of fight back from the week that was last weekend. There was yet another deadly shooting at a place of worship. A synagogue near San Diego was targeted last Saturday. A woman was killed. Three people were injured, including the rabbi. Some say the attack could have been worse since the gun apparently jammed after the rabbi was shot at. It wasn't long ago. Hundreds of Christians were slaughtered in churches in Sri Lanka and in March dozens of people were killed in mosque attacks in Christchurch, New Zealand. In order to try to better understand why these types of attacks are happening so frequently, Libby Snymer spoke with security and terrorism expert Ross McLean, along with the Director of Policy and Strategic Communications for the Jewish Federation of Canada, Steve McDonald.
2: I think uh, everyone in the Jewish community is is heartbroken and and horrified at what took place in San Diego County. Uh, Security is something with which our community is very familiar. We have uh, strong protocols and systems in place to protect our institutions. And and we are a resilient community, but it still uh, shocks and disturbs us to see these sort of uh, anti-Semitic attacks taking place. This is the second time in six months that an American synagogue has been targeted for a mass shooting. As you mentioned, miraculously, uh, the shooter's gun jammed and therefore the loss of life while well, ter- terrifying as it was, uh, was not what it could have been, and so we know that law enforcement here in Canada are drawing lessons and deployed the necessary resources this weekend to ensure that communities are safe. But the community is is quite concerned, as you can imagine.
3: Ross McLean.
2: Well, it's it's horrific. It's
4: another shooting, but in the in the environment that we have today across North America, it's it's we're fostering this sort of hate. Uh, identity politics, and our universities in particular, are rife with these sort of issues. And I think there's going to be more to the background on that if we have some investigation into it, Libby.
3: Okay. Uh, You were saying uh, that you think the shooter in this case may have been radicalized at his university.
4: Well, let's look at this. This is a young man, 19 years old. He's a nursing student, never known to the police before. Uh, apparently the police say with no connections to any white supremacist group. What he does do, though, is he's going to the School University of California in San uh, Macron. Now, down down in those universities, we've all heard about the craziness that's going on down there with diversity, political correct speak, uh, snowflakes, and everything else. Well, they've got some real issues down there. They've just, uh, a little while ago, the whole California State University network was sued for being anti-Semitic because they were actively working against uh, Jews. They were being sued for it in court. Libby, uh, the course, uh, the case was just coming up, and the and the the university settled out of court for it and admitted that they needed to hire someone to promote Jewish uh, studies and protect Jews and to say that Zionism is part of what is being Jewish and this is what's being actively fostered on the campuses and this where this is where this young man is from so i think it's reasonable to start looking there for where the radicalization of thinking that uh shooting and killing jews is something that's uh that's that's, that's reasonable to do
3: Steve McDonald, uh, do you agree with that? I know that a lot of Jewish organizations see big problems on campuses. There is anti-Semitism on campuses. On the other hand, I just read some statistics that say most of the anti-Semitic incidents are perpetrated by neo-Nazi far-right people.
2: Well, I think there's a lot to unpack here. I I think obviously there is anti-Semitism on campus, and anti-Semitism, generally speaking, is seeing a rise in the Western world uh and and it it is cropping up on both the far right and on the far left and uh, among some well many uh, violent Islamist uh movements as well and so it is a it is a multidimensional problem it takes on various it it uh takes on various ideological traits um and what we do see is that historically whenever you see political polarization and social and economic instability, you see an environment in which anti-Semitism can thrive. And so I, I think that in this case, we do know that he was steeped in white supremacist ideology, according to, to the reports that are available, and that he claims to have been inspired by the Pittsburgh synagogue shooter, as well as the Christchurch uh, mosque shooter. And so I think we have to look at the... The uh, the fact that online hate is a key component of this, uh, individuals who are radicalized to commit violence usually are, are fueled and fostered by online propaganda. Uh, this individual seems to be no exception to that. And so I think it is crucial that we have uh, a national strategy here in Canada to deal with the issue of, of calls for violence and incitement taking place online. Thankfully, the House of Commons Justice Committee is currently studying this issue, and we hope that... This will lead to a strategy that brings in internet service providers, social media platforms and others to tackle this issue. I think we have to recognize we have a phenomenal country here in Canada. We've done a pretty good job as a country of navigating polarization, but we're not immune from this. If it can happen in the UK, if it can happen in France and Sweden, uh, we can't be complacent. And therefore, uh, credit to you for giving space to this conversation and for Ross as well for, for sharing his views.
1: That was terrorism and security expert Ross McLean and Steve McDonald, the Director of Policy and Strategic Communications for the Jewish Federation of Canada. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Thousands of residents in central and eastern Ontario, along with Quebec and New Brunswick, have been affected by flooding in communities under states of emergency. The mayors of Ottawa and Bracebridge even called in the Canadian Armed Forces for helping in battling the floods. Libby spoke with Daryl Culley, the president at Emergency Management and Training, to get some tips on how best to handle these situations. And Blair Feltmate, the head of the Climate Adaptation Faculty of Environment at the University of Waterloo, to share his insight with us.
5: Well, the flooding is occurring across the country for two primary reasons. One, uh, climate change is real. It's happening. And as a result of climate change, we're getting, uh, bigger storms of greater magnitude, more water coming down over shorter periods, shorter periods of time, which could obviously contributes to flooding. Also combined with the fact that, and this is a phenomenon right across Canada, but for southern, uh, southern Ontario specifically, we've removed about 73% over the course of the last 100 years of the natural infrastructure that was rig- originally here, forest, uh, uh fields, swamps, marshes, wetlands, and turned it into, it's either been paved over or turned into some form of agricultural development. And when the water hits these areas that are now developed, it, it doesn't absorb very very well. It runs off very quickly to discrete locations to the lowest point um, in a hurry. And through a combination of uh, bigger storms, more water coming down over shorter periods of time, combined with the fact we have less ability to absorb it and hold it, uh, that's creating the floods that we're now experiencing with increasing frequency.
3: Daryl, are, are we seeing a situation where people might think they know what they have to do to prepare for spring, but uh, they don't?
6: People, you know, take a look at their past history. And, uh, you know, with climate change, the past isn't being reflected in what we're seeing in the present or the future. Um you know, we are seeing these these larger flooding events. So different weather types, of events of all natures, um, are taking place now. So, you know, people who might even they might have lived there for for twenty or thirty years, um, and they saw the seasonal changes twenty years ago, they're seeing a, a different environment currently.
3: What should people be doing to prepare, Daryl? Well, the first thing is they need to
6: know their area. They need to know what the the risk is where they live, um, what the floodplains are, uh, particularly, you know, for people who are going up and, and buying properties or cottages, they need to take a look at that before they they buy. Um, but not only take a look at what traditionally has happened, but take a look at you know, most municipalities, if if you go to the municipality, they will have floodplain maps that show, for example, the 100-year events and what they're planned for. And uh, make sure that they're outside of that. And if they're within it, um, they need to look at protecting their, their property, either through um, uh, developing uh, uh, berms, that sort of thing, within their property, or in this particular case, as it's happening now, uh, get sandbagging. Daryl
3: Blair, what would you like to leave us with?
5: What I would say is, for a homeowner or someone's renting a you know a home, does either way, if if they turn to our website, the Intact Center on Climate Adaptation, on the top line, they will find very very quickly top 50, the top fifteen things you can do around your house, simply easily. Almost anybody who could lay a patio could do this to very, very much lower the probability of, somebody, of you uh, ending up with a flooded basement. And generally speaking, you could do this for a few hundred dollars.
3: Kelly, what would you like to leave us with on this? People need to create a plan.
6: They need to know what they would do if the floodwaters start to impact their homes. Um, You know, have that checklist. Things like turn off the power if your basement's starting to flood to reduce the the chance of um, contamination. Understand that wells and your drinking water may become contaminated. Um, Don't drive through road closures. Um, You know, that's a a big issue. And, um, you know, follow evacuation orders. If If the municipality declares a state of emergency and asks you to evacuate, It's time to evacuate. Um, So you need to be prepared for that.
1: That was Daryl Cully, President at Emergency Management and Training, along with Blair Feltmate, Head of the Climate Adaptation Faculty of Environment at the University of Waterloo. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Thousands took part in a big protest on the lawn of Queen's Park Tuesday to speak out against the Ford government's cuts to Toronto Public Health. There's been a huge discrepancy between the city's calculations and those of the province. City staff say the cuts add up to about $65 million for the coming year and $84 million in 2020-2021, with a staggering $1 billion over the course of a decade. But the provincial number crunchers put the figures at $25 million for the coming year and $33 million for the next. So who's right and who's wrong? Libby got both sides of the story when she spoke with City Councillor Shelley Carroll, PC MPP Robin Martin, who's also the Parliamentary Assistant to Health Minister Christine Elliott, and Toronto Mayor John Tory. We have
0: set out how we calculated our number the government of Ontario never has, like in writing, where they put it down in writing, and I'm quite happy that we should have the two sets of calculations side by side and let people make their own decisions, with the real bottom line being that no matter which calculation you accept, let's say it is one or the other, uh, that that they're cutting back by tens of millions of dollars on public health expenditures, and they're doing it in the case of the city, they're doing it for all cities, so all the people listening across southern Ontario, every city or town, is having a very substantial cutback, and in the case of Toronto, the cutbacks are bigger. They deliberately made the cutbacks millions more in Toronto than in any other city. And I certainly don't understand the reasoning behind that.
3: You have called this a targeted attack on the health of our city.
0: I called it a targeted attack because Toronto is being singled out for special bad attention, in other words the cutbacks that we're experiencing are much bigger than any other city many of the things that we're required to deliver on infectious diseases and immunization and all that kind of stuff are things that are mandated by provincial legislation so we're doing it because their law says so they paid for that reason a share of the cost and they're now just unilaterally out of the blue and retroactively uh, cutting back on the amount they will contribute so to me when I hear the minister saying in the newscast that we can all just sort of suck it up and move forward. I say to myself, well, that's fine for you to say, uh, you know, when you just unilaterally, without any consultation, changed what you were going to contribute, but still told us we had to carry out these responsibilities that they thought were important in their laws.
3: We now go to PC MPP Robin Martin, who is the parliamentary assistant to Health Minister Christine Elliott. The Health Protection and Promotion Act has always said that
7: municipalities are responsible for, for funding public health. And what has happened over time is that the provincial government has uh, paid some of that. And traditionally it was a 50-50 split for everybody. Um, and uh, it went to 75-25 uh, at one point. Uh, we're trying to uh, make sure that we live within our means. We, we, we're following a government that spent $40 million every day that it did not have and we're trying to make responsible measured changes that will modernize our public health system and have responsibilities uh, uh you know we'll keep paying our responsible share of public health for Toronto, that will be 50-50. If we're not trying to make life difficult, we are really trying to work with the city and other municipalities to give them more of a say and more control over uh, programs uh, for public health. Um, but we expect them to prioritize uh, the things that matter most and, and not waste the money on, on uh, things that are less, you know, salient to the the real public health concerns of people.
3: We are going to Counselor Shelley Carroll. We're not returning
8: to what was a norm in in uh, making our way back to a 50-50 cost share. What we're doing is going back to a point in time that was wholly inadequate and and that was made crystal clear. During the time we were at 50-50 in municipalities, you had the Walkerton crisis in a small town in Ontario. In, a, in the big city in Toronto, we had the SARS crisis. You know, in sharing by half, we were also at half-mast. Prior to, to reducing funding down to 50-50, there was also a problem in that uh, the province had a crazy quilt of services. We'll deliver some, you deliver some, and sometimes the, the cost sharing formula is one amount and sometimes another. What we moved to over time was the most efficient way to deal with it. The premier was very fond when he when he worked in this building where I'm sitting right now of saying, "Come on, guys, there's only one taxpayer. There is only one taxpayer," and so. I think that people know that when we do this, we're really just playing around with where should the money come from, because um, it, it, it's it's all going to come out of the pocket of of the people listening at home. But I I would ask them this: when we're talking about healthcare, should it come out of the the pocket of those who are still working and earning and benefiting from our economy, or should it be taken from people on the basis of the value of their house? Property tax is the wrong place to fund the lion's share of preventative health work. You, you, don't, you don't end the SARS epidemic using property tax dollars. You need the strongest fiscal partner to be the province because they're using income tax, which means they're far, focused far more on those people making the most in Ontario's strong economy.
1: City Councilor Shelly Carroll, PCMPP Robin Martin, and Toronto Mayor John Tory. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Thursday was Holocaust Remembrance Day. A new initiative was launched to honor the day called Liberation 75, which is named for the 75th anniversary since survivors of the Holocaust were liberated. The program is designed to educate students about the Holocaust and provide an important and timely lesson for students to learn what can actually happen When hate goes unchecked, a global gathering of Holocaust survivors, descendants and liberators gave students the opportunity to hear from the last remaining Holocaust survivors. Experience that is vital as most survivors who are still alive are into their 90s. Libby spoke with the founder of Liberation 75, Marilyn Sinclair, to learn more
8: idea
9: that actually came about as an extension of something that happened in the 1980s when we had the global gathering movement across the world. In Canada, we had the Canadian gathering of Holocaust survivors and descendants in 1985 to commemorate the 40th anniversary of liberation. And it was a time when the Holocaust survivors were not speaking about their experiences. The children of survivors didn't know anything about the Holocaust or their parents' experiences. And it became a such an important event for so many people, myself included. I went with my Holocaust survivor father to Ottawa for three days, where we heard people speak for the first time about the Holocaust. And after that time, I always promised my father I would organize another one when the timing was right. Unfortunately, he passed away nine years ago, and the timing really wasn't right in his lifetime. 2020 marks the 75th anniversary of liberation. And now we're at another very critical point, because we're losing the survivors, we're losing our witnesses. And we have to ask the question, where do we go from here? How do we ensure that the Holocaust doesn't just become a footnote in, in history in and, you know, in a history book that nobody knows about?
3: You know, it, it's interesting, my parents also went through the Holocaust, uh, they might have hesitated to call themselves survivors because they were not in a concentration camp, even though I know the definition of survivor is broader than that. And and we learned about it in school, but they were reluctant to talk about their experiences. And, mm. you know, interestingly, last week I had the great pleasure of interviewing Dr. Ruth Westheimer that will be coming up and there's a documentary about her life uh, that is largely focused on her experience with the Holocaust and I asked her, why are you doing this now? And it's because she didn't talk about it much and we are now seeing an increase in in Holocaust denial in anti-Semitic incidents and she's 92 when she says this is really important.
9: Mm -hmm.
3: And I think that people are recognizing that Holocaust and genocide
9: education is really a lesson for all humanity, that people need to embrace these messages, or we're just going to allow the hate to just fester in our society and
3: grow. And your event next year, you're going to bring 7,000 people. Uh, uh, Why Toronto? Toronto, I believe, is
9: one of the most diverse Cities in the world. I think it is a city that stands as a model to other cities across the world to say that we can coexist in harmony together and not just exist, but acceptance and inclusion and diversity. I think that that represents Toronto. We have a fantastic convention center. We are on train lines. We're easy access from the airports. Uh, we're just a great place to hold an event like this. And I'll tell you that when I first started talking to American partners, they said they didn't want it in the United States. And that certainly never happened before. Yes. They said Canada is a much better place to have a conference that is is set on human rights and trying to teach people about how to be good citizens.
3: And uh, in what way is this a, a tribute to the Shermans? So the
9: first person who I spoke to about this idea was Honey. She was a, a really good friend of mine. We worked very closely together as lay leaders um, at the Newberger Holocaust Education Centre. I knew she was passionate about this and about Jewish community and about Toronto. And I could always go to her to find out whether an idea would fly or not. She was just brilliant about what works and what doesn't, and whether something's necessary or not. And she looked at me, she said, I love it. I'm in. It's perfect. We need to ensure that the students know about the Holocaust. We can highlight Toronto. We can build the community. We can build this as an event with participating organizations from around the world. And right now we have over 70 participating organizations. And she just saw it for what it was really a, a, a time to bring best practices all together to bring the students in, the teachers in, really educate a whole new generation about the Holocaust.
1: That was the founder of the Holocaust education program, Liberation 75, Marilyn Sinclair. I'm Jane Brown. This is Zuma Radio's Best of Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby Nimer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the week. Bill in Toronto phoned to share his views on the recent flooding in and around Muskoka, Bracebridge, and Huntsville, where he owns property.
4: I've got a family cottage. Well, it's my cottage now, but we've been up in Bracebridge uh, for 40 years. And you know what? There was a flood back in uh, 2013, and I remember floods going back previously. It's the nature of the beast. It's got nothing to do with global warming and all this nonsense. People that build in floodplains have to expect what they get. You know, it's just, this is not extraordinary. And you know, what's the next thing we're going to do is stop the next ice age from coming? What are we going to do then? Burn fossil
1: fuels? Joel in Toronto made it clear as to who he won't be voting for in the upcoming federal election.
4: Yeah, my family, we always voted for liberal, but after what uh, Mr. Trudeau has done to us, I will never vote for them again. He's lied and lied and lied in all these corruptions. He gives money to all these ISIS fighters that come back to Canada, and he doesn't take care of us, all the old people. We have no more friends left. China, U.S., the Philippines,
0: Israel, Israel. Italy.
4: Nobody wants to talk to us no more.
0: Why?
1: And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. Great calls, as always, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Stephen in Parkdale, who shared his view about the recent slew of attacks on places of worship.
0: I think the United States was founded on a good principle, separation of religion and uh, state. People want to be bringing their religion into their their government, and then it's being taught at the universities, and you know you got Bibi again elected, propped up by... Again, religious parties. You, you have to keep religion out of government.
1: That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of fight back
0: the best of fight back is produced by jane brown michelle saunders justin Eacock, and kelly robotham